You are listening to UBC Waco Podcast. <laughs> are you recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. We can use that as just a scratch track for now. Good morning, UBC. Uh, it is so good to be here today. Uh, my name is Patrick Broadus. Uh, my family and I have been members here at UBC for probably a little over, I guess, five years now. Um, and it's really just great to be here with y'all today. Um, I don't get to be here often these days. I'm serving as an interim pastor at a sister church outside Marlin, Texas, and so I'm usually not in-house. Uh, and so I cherish any chance I get to be back here and to be back with my own um, church family and even with our youth who hand me really um, diabolical words. Um, no donuts for y'all next week. So... Um, <laughs> This morning's lectionary text um, that I ended up going with is uh, the Old Testament passage out of the prophet of Jeremiah. I got Jamie really excited about this when I texted him this week to say I was going with this. I don't know that I can appropriately tell y'all what he responded with, uh, but let's just say he was excited, and I think he was hoping that I would bring some of that good Old Testament prophetic fire to the pulpit this morning. Um, I don't think that's where I'm going. (laughs) We'll see what comes out this morning. Uh, But church, as we prepare today to gather around God's word, would you join me in a word of prayer? God, as we, your people, pause this morning, as we continue in our worship and gather around your word, God, my prayer is that you would be the God who speaks, and that we, God, would be the people with ears that hear and hearts that listen. We pray these things in the name of your son. Amen. I have kind of a running joke with my wife about UBC, that that UBC isn't usually the church that most people choose to go to, it's the church that most people go to because they feel like they have no other choices. Um, Which may sound like a little bit of an insult or a backhanded compliment to UBC this morning, but I want y'all to kind of hang in with me. I wanna explain what I mean by that. Um, For about 10 years, I was in vocational ministry part-time and full-time. I started um, 10 years ago as, or more than 10 years ago as a youth pastor, which let me say, um, if you have not taken time recently to tell Kieran, thank you for all that he does um, as our youth pastor, please do. Um, Youth ministry is hard. And I'm not saying that because youth are hard. That is is not at all what I'm saying. It's actually the exact opposite. Youth ministry is hard because youth are some of, in my experience, the most honest and open people that we have in our culture. They're old enough to ask big questions, but they're not so old like most of us that they've become jaded or silenced by life. And so as a youth pastor, you have to be prepared and on your toes for questions that are huge and come out of left field. And um, if y'all don't know, this is a lot of what Kieran is doing with our youth on Wednesday nights by giving them the chance to ask big questions and then to attempt to take that on. And Kieran, I just am so thankful uh, for all you do. And I I hope that you guys will show Kieran uh, some love for all he does for our youth. Um, Youth ministry, I found out really quickly, was not for me. Uh, And so I moved on, and I moved into a church down in southeast Texas where I was an associate pastor and eventually left Texas altogether uh, to become a senior pastor of a church out in central North Carolina. I loved being a part of that church in North Carolina. I really loved being a pastor. Pastoring's hard work. It's it's often lonely. It's often unappreciated. But for those who do it, I, I don't think they can imagine their life doing anything else 
I, I really loved where we were. We were about an hour south of the Raleigh area. We were kind of in the middle of nowhere, uh, but we were in this little rural community that was one of those communities that were like, you had the Baptist church and you had the Methodist church and that was it. And like the Baptist and Methodist church, everybody at those churches were related. The families just kind of divided up in half and one went here and one went here. Um, I kind of jokingly called our church in North Carolina the church of the five families. Literally everybody was related except for us. And I, according to that joke, we probably could have dug far enough back in our family trees and found somebody related to all of these. Um, on top of that, the little cherry on top, we were like two and a half hours from the mountains, two and a half hours from the beach. It was paradise. At least it was for me. For my wife, slowly over time out there, it was becoming something vastly different. Um, on the outside, everything looked like she was out there just thriving and crushing it, and especially in kind of a, a more conservative, old-school Baptist church that puts a lot of pressure on a pastor's spouse. She was really riding with a lot of those expectations well and, and really kind of doing her part um, to, to kind of lay into those duties. But on the inside... We both knew that she was beginning to struggle with something that would take us years to finally get a name for it. It's called clinical depression. Not knowing this at the time, we kind of began to assume that living 1,300 miles from home, both of us having been from the Waco area, that being that far away from home and having two children, we had had our second while we were in North Carolina, that the, the struggle of raising small children that far from home with very little support system was really what was taking its toll. And so we began to have these big conversations about what would it look like to leave North Carolina, to go, to go home, to give up this world that, that we loved and these people that we loved, but to go home. And as we had those conversations, honestly, we felt stuck. We still felt stuck because we loved the church and yet we yearned for home and we didn't really know what to do. And in the midst of all of this struggle and all these conversations, one day Courtney received a phone call from a friend back home in Texas. This phone call seemed providential or, or like almost a moment of divine intervention because this friend let her know that there was this job opening back in Waco that was really, if Courtney had been able to say, this is probably about as close to a dream job as I'm gonna get, this was it. And for us, it really seemed like a no-brainer. It seemed like it's, this was the answer to all the prayers and all the conversations that we had been having. And so for us, we made a decision that this was the right moment, this was the right time, this was the right place to make a move. The tricky part in making that move in that moment is she had a job, I did not. And having grown up in Waco, I knew that finding a church job in Waco was going to be a tall task for me. Partly because of the, what, like 150 Baptist churches, I think, in McLennan County. Um, like 145 of those I probably wouldn't want to pastor, and the other five I don't know if they would have wanted me. Um, or they were full. And so church we knew was going to be tricky. But we felt like this was the right thing. And so we left into the void. What we did not know when we made that decision and we moved home was that this would not be the fix for what my wife was struggling through and that she would plunge into the depths of her depression. We did not know that it would take me almost a year and a half to find a steady full-time job. We did not know at the time, and I'm not saying this because they're actually here this morning. I didn't know they were gonna be here. This is actually in here, guys. Uh, my in-laws would host us in their home for a year, <laughs> living with them for a year, which I can say um, 
gladly this morning with them having been here, uh, that they're amazing and unbelievably generous with their space and the help that we received with our children. Um, but living as a family of four with somebody else is not easy. Add in the financial struggles that came with all of that and you can begin to see how that first year back was a struggle. The, the cherry on top of all of this, as if depression and unemployment and financial woes and living with your in-laws isn't enough, um, was that we also were really feeling spiritually homeless. We were struggling to find a church home here in Waco where we felt that the pain that we were experiencing both personally and spiritually would not just be kind of accepted with a pat on the back, but it would be a church where we felt like we could come and be open about what we were dealing with, open with what we were struggling with, that that church would embrace us with open arms in which the trauma that we were experiencing would begin to be able to be healed in a real and tangible way. The truth is, most churches don't deal with trauma well. And we were beginning to experience that as we were going through all of this in our first year back. Somewhere in the middle of that, we said, we gotta, we gotta come up with a new list. We gotta begin to figure out another church that we can go to. And we had some friends that kept saying to us, listen, y'all really, really need to try out UBC. And we kept saying to ourselves, like, really, UBC? I mean, we're from Waco, so like we, we've been around UBC. We know kind of the UBC thing. Like in the back of our minds, we're going, that's the Crowder Church. I mean, my wife and I both went to CD release parties here. Yes, CDs, for those of y'all who can actually remember CDs. We came and stood in here and danced and sang and partied. Um, we, we can remember back when UBC used to have a B band because when Crowder was out of town, somebody else had to fill in, and we were friends with a lot of people on that B band. And UBC for us just hadn't been on the radar, but our friends persisted. We said, fine, we'll try it on. Five and a half years later, we haven't left. <clears throat> we haven't left because I think as many of you have experienced here in this space, that what most of us have experienced in our lives through church, whether those experiences have been positive or traumatic, there's just something different about this place. There's something unique. There is a shared experience and in some ways a shared trauma that many of us are able to finally be real about, to be open about, to experience together and to hopefully through the ministry of this place find healing. I think the idea of shared experience and especially shared trauma is something that the people of Israel would have been uniquely understanding of. In our Old Testament passage this morning, we, we meet Israel at this watershed moment in their life. As if they hadn't been through enough trauma already, you think backwards in the story of the people of Israel, and you can go back to the trauma that they experienced at the hands of bondage in Egypt, and then the trauma that they experienced of 40 years of wandering as a people without a home through the wilderness the trauma that they would experience even after accepting a place in the promised land as their nation literally divided into the promised people of God splintered over politics and power. And then as if that wasn't enough, they had the shared experience and trauma of watching as nation after nation came in and overtook 
the people of Israel and overtook their country and deportations were happening under both the Assyrian power and then the Babylonians that would come after that, the people of Israel would have understood themselves as, yes, spiritually different, as a unique people called to be the people of God, and yet they were also those who had walked through some of the most traumatic experiences that life could offer a human being. It was in the middle of one of these great moments in the second deportation at the hand of the Babylonians, in the midst of this traumatic moment in which the Babylonians had swept in and not just carted people off, but they had leveled Jerusalem, the holy city, and not just that, but they had leveled the temple, the place that was meant to be the true dwelling place of the Spirit of God, the place that when they opened the doors of it, that the people who were there to witness it that day said literally the the real breathing Spirit of God had entered the Holy of Holies. That place had been put to the fires and leveled to the ground, and then the people carted off to Babylon. It is to these people that Jeremiah shows up next to the rivers in Babylon with a word. And you have to understand the task that Jeremiah has ahead of himself. Because you have to understand that in the ancient Near Eastern world, for a people to be defeated and for their temples to be put to the fires, it wasn't just that their nation was weaker than the other nations. That literally in their understanding of politics and theology, for the temple to be destroyed was that literally that other nation's gods were more powerful than your God. That your God had essentially been put to death. So for the Jews carried off to Babylon, after watching the massacre in Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, it wasn't just that Israel and Judah and the people of God had lost a war. It was that for them, Yahweh and the dream that was the people of God in the promised land was dead. Your whole life, everything that you had ever put your faith in had been ripped apart and taken away from you. Think about sitting in Babylon by the rivers there and having to process that level of grief, that level of anger. Anger at God for not being strong enough to protect them. Anger at each other for not being strong enough to hold off the the enemy. Anger at what felt like unjust punishment as people who really thought of themselves as different, as God's chosen. And through your anger, trying to mourn all that you had lost, your home, your friends, your family, your faith, your hope. This is what Jeremiah stepped into to try to speak a word to God's people, to try to speak through the people's pain, to try to speak through their hopelessness and their grief, to try and have them see and to hear that their God wasn't just dead, but that there was still hope to be had. About you, but if it's me and I'm sitting there in Babylon and a prophet shows up with a word, what I'm what I'm hoping for, what I'm hoping to hear them say would have been something more akin to uh, for those of you who were actually children of the 90s and you remember the old movie Independence Day, um, the one with Will Smith and Bill Pullman. You think about that moment towards the end when they're finally getting ready to fight the aliens, and Bill Pullman stands up and he gives this incredible speech, and at the end, we will not go quietly into the night, we will not vanish without a fight, we're gonna live on, we're gonna survive. Because today, today is our, (coughs) we have some children in the 90s here today. This is great. That's it. But instead, 
What do they get? Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who have been sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives to your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they might bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, don't decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare will you find your welfare. This isn't some great rah-rah speech about how God's gonna come back and destroy the Babylonians and send the people home. God's looking at the people and he's saying, you're gonna be here a while. Life goes on. Plant roots, settle down, start families. The promised land is maybe gone, but you can bring that kind of life here and bring about goodness and shalom to Babylon and to the Babylonians and to this city where I have sent you because right now you're not going home. Church, you have to imagine that that kind of word to those people in the midst of that kind of trauma probably went over about as good as a lead balloon. You want us to do what? Here, this, this place and this place with these people, the people who killed our friends and our relatives, the people who burned our city and our temples to the ground, the ones who laid siege to Jerusalem and committed atrocity after atrocity, and then they took us from our homeland and brought us here to this place where there is no place to worship God. You want us to do what? Do you know what we've been through, Jeremiah? Do you know what we have lost? And now you want us to just Keep going here to move forward in the same hope and with the same purpose that we did back home. Jeremiah, this can't be what God wants. There has to be something better. Back in the 1980s, the country of Liberia was in the midst of a civil war. And in that moment, the United Methodist Council of Bishops sent an American bishop, a guy by the name of David Lawson there. And he had really two jobs. One, um, his first job was to try to keep his Liberian colleague, Bishop Arthur Kula, out of jail. <laughs> Basically, stop causing trouble, keep him from going to jail. Um, and then his other job was to go visit pastors who were already in jail and attempt to try to procure their freedom. He had only been there two days when Bishop Pula's assistant invited him to, to go on a journey with him. And they, they got in the car and they began to drive. And they went about three and a half hours outside of the city where they were. And all of a sudden, the assistant pulls the car over in a very nondescript place out in kind of the middle of nowhere. And they begin to, to hike. And they, they head up this hill. And on the top of the hill, there was a a patch of ground where there was a, a small square plot that had been formed with evergreen trees. And as they, they went into the trees, he noticed there in the middle was a small square concrete box. There was nothing on it. It wasn't marked. It wasn't ornate. No inscriptions. Nothing to tell him what in the world it was that he was looking at. 
As the bishop stood there silently beside his host, he began to realize that his host was quietly weeping. And finally, he had to break the silence and he, he gently asked this man what it was that they were looking at. And his host looked at him and just said, you don't know. You don't know the story. And so he told him. He told him the story of the Fadleys. The Fadleys were young American seminary graduates who had gone to Liberia as missionaries. Um, Mr. Fadley was an agriculturalist. He had gone to Liberia to try to teach the people how to grow crops from the arid land. Uh, Miss Fadley was a teacher, and she was there to start schools in many of the surrounding um, towns and neighborhoods. And as they began to do their work, the people slowly began to fall in love with the Fadleys, and the truth was the Fadleys really fell in love with the people. Somewhere along the way, though, Mrs. Fadley began to grow weak and sick. And all of the doctors there in Liberia couldn't figure out what was wrong with her. And they, they suggested to the Fadleys, listen, y'all really ought to go back to the States and, and get some better medical attention there. I think you'll be able to figure out what this is and get some better examinations. But they lingered. They couldn't bring themselves to leave just yet. You see, there were, there were crops to plant. There were still more schools that they were beginning to start. And uh, congregations were starting to arise from their work. They, they had important work to do, and truth was for them... This was home. You can probably guess what happened next. She began to grow ever weaker. And finally, it got to the point where even if she had wanted to travel back to the States, it was never gonna happen. She couldn't leave. And at the end of her life, she asked her husband for one favor. She said, we've, we've loved these people. What we've been doing here is beautiful and important works. Our hearts belong here. When I die, you can ship my body home. My parents would like that. But first, I want you to ask the surgeons to remove my heart. I want my heart here. It was in that moment that Bishop Lawson knew exactly what was in the concrete box. He later said, I knew I was on holy ground. I stood there silently, but silently beside this weeping assistant and all I could think about was whether there was any group, any place, any people in this world that I should regard as so important and beautiful that I would want to bury my heart in that place among those people. UBC, this is exactly what Jeremiah was asking the people of Israel to do in Babylon. To regard that place as just as important and just as beautiful as the promised land. And to be willing to serve God in such a way that they would bury their hearts there if they had to. And UBC, I believe it is this that he continues to ask of us still here in this place and in this time. If UBC is a people and a place that you believe it's worth bearing your hearts, 
And by UBC, I don't mean the brick and the mortar or the faulty ACs or the parking lot that needs repaving or the policy and polities and handbooks, the thousand other things that we can find to disagree on or to argue over, to struggle through, especially during the pastoral interim, which is such a trying time for so many churches. No, the truth is, UBC, UBC is, has been, and always will be you. It is the people. And church, I ask you, is that, are these people, when you look around this room and you look into the faces of those beside you, do you find this to be a place that is worth burying your heart? Because if it is, church, I have to ask this morning, if this is a place that's worth burying your heart, is it then also a place that's worth giving more than just your time, but to also give your finances to help support the ministries at our church that we're struggling to find ways to do because of the situation that we're facing with our budget. If this is a place that's worth burying your hearts, then UBC, I have to ask, is this a place that's worth giving more than just your money, but that's also worth giving your time to help support the ministries and the places where we need volunteers because we are sorely understaffed, especially with our children, children who need to hear these stories, the stories of God and the hope that they can find in him. UBC, if this is a place that's worth bearing your hearts, I have to ask you this morning, then is this a place that's worth setting aside your own wants, your own desires, your own opinions, and your own commitments to a space and a people that are right beside you that might be different than you, that might believe differently than you, that might act out their faith differently than you, that might have, God forbid, different opinions about how to freaking do church? Because you believe that when you look in their face, what you see is not an individual, but what you see is a reflection of God. His image uniquely imprinted on them. And because of that, what you see is somebody who is worth your love and worth the healing that we are all trying to seek from the traumas and the experiences that we have shared together in an effort to try to do the work of God here on earth. Is UBC a place worth burying your heart. Through all that we experienced, through all that my wife and I have lived through, five and a half years ago, when we walked in that door and we sat right back here, the answer to that very quickly became yes. It is for us. I pray it will be for you too. Would you pray with me this morning? God, you began a work so long ago through your son to bring about the redemption of this broken world. And then you had the audacity to look at people, us human beings, frail, weak, traumatized, and to say, I want to do that work through you. God, I'm thankful for this church and the way it embodies your gospel in such a unique way. And I pray that we would be a place that we feel is worthy of burying our hearts to do the work of the kingdom of God together. Pray these things in your name. Amen. At the end of the preaching time of our worship, we like to give space 
in that space, maybe the Holy Spirit needs to correct something I said incorrectly, or maybe the Holy Spirit needs to minister something new to you this morning. Church, we give space for that.